Man, guys, I am so excited to spend some time with you. I'm so excited to open up God's Word with you for the next few minutes. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Get your Bibles ready. We're going to turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to go back to chapter 1, and we're going to spend just a little under 30 minutes talking about uh, why Easter is still amazing, even after 2,000 years. In fact, let me get us there. Let me get us queued up here for a second. Boom. Why Easter why after 2,000 years, Easter is still amazing. I'll give you a couple seconds to get your Bibles, but even as you do that, let me just let you know where we're going. We're only looking at three verses today, but we're going to start out very similarly to how we started out last week, and I'm going to have you guys read Colossians chapter 1, but specifically as you read this morning, I want you to quickly, quickly identify three things that Paul is praying for on behalf of the Colossians. In fact, that very first introductory part focuses a ton on what he's praying for on their behalf. So as you pull up your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter one, and I'm going to give you two minutes to read through that and make three quick observations. You can write them down or you can just in your head, take mental note of them. It's 1130. You got two minutes starting now.
All right, I know that went by really fast, but I really wanted you to get a sense of what's happening in this passage. Paul begins the book of Colossians by praying for them. He says, we haven't ceased praying for you. And when we do pray for you, here's why we're thankful. And then he says, and we consistently pray for you, starting at verse nine. Um, We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so the rest of this letter is really meant to highlight some of the things that he is praying for, praying for them and what he's praying on behalf of them. So let me start out here by referencing a, an Easter classic. I think Christians have been, have been really observing not just uh, the resurrection for 2000 years, but also uh, observing a certain story for the last 2000 years as well. It's called Frozen 2. And Frozen 2 starts off with the song that everybody knows and loves. Uh, in fact, I heard Matt Daniel boasting about how often he watches this when he has downtime. It's the, <laughs> it's, it's the song, Some Things Never Change. Now, I, I, I did for a second think about showing the video to you guys, but then I thought, man, that's four minutes of my life I'm not going to get back. I'll just quote to you the parts that I think are especially relevant. Uh, and by the way, if you haven't seen Frozen 2 yet, there, there may be a spoiler or two in the next couple minutes. If you haven't seen it yet, this is your fault. You should have seen it already. But in the song, Some Things Never Change, Olaf is, is thinking about the, the, the way that everything's changing. He's super smart and philosophical. And then they start singing the song about how things never change. But the song is meant to be ironic. As they're singing the song, Some Things Never Change, uh, all these things around them are changing. In fact, some of the very things they're referencing are the very things that are changing. She says, some things never change, like the feel of your hand in mine. Some things never change, like how we get along just fine, like an old stone wall that'll never fall. Some things are always true. Some things will never change, like I'm holding on tight to you. Uh, irony, the, the, the stone wall does fall down. And the fact that uh, Anna, I think this is Anna and Olaf get separated. They're not holding on tight. Uh, Olaf dies again, as, as always happens in these stories. Uh, and so you, you, have this, uh, you have this sense of which they're desiring for there to be something permanent, and yet the thing breaks apart. Later on, what's her face? The other gal sings a song and says, I can't freeze this moment. Um, Anna's sister, what's her face? That's her technical name. That's not what they used in the Disney movie. But what's her face sings, I can't freeze this moment. Again, not able to suspend time, but I can still go on and seize this day. I can't have the permanence that I desire, but I can just take this day. The wind blows a little colder. All of you look older. It's time to count our blessings beneath an autumn sky, which again, changing seasons. We'll always live in the kingdom of plenty that stands for the good of the many. And I promise you the flag of Arendelle will always fly. Well, if you know the movie, the flag of Arendelle doesn't always fly because something uh, catastrophic happens. Uh, in the desire for permanence, uh, all these things begin changing. And it's really in this song that you have encapsulated this human yearning for something that doesn't change, for something that's always true, for something that doesn't uh, you know, rise and fall with the tide. And this is the human condition. You and I were meant to long for something more permanent than what we have in front of us. The Bible says, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. He's made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him, one theologian put it. And so this is what we're looking at when we look at Easter. The reason why the Easter and the resurrection is still so important and still, still so amazing is because it meets a human need for permanence. What has happened in the, in the resurrection is that Jesus crushed sin and death in order to give us a permanent kingdom, a permanent life that is eternally good. Frozen 2 is about the resurrection. You may not know that, but I'm going to point out another factor to you that I think is important to, to this point. 
But Easter is meant to really point us to the fact that Jesus has permanently done the impossible. He saved mankind from sin and death and now rules and reigns. And someday he's going to take us with him to be where he is and allow us to rule and reign with him in a kingdom that will never die which is exactly what that what's-her-face girl was singing in Frozen 2. We want a kingdom that'll never end. We want good things. We want a, a perpetual spring, a perpetual ongoing life. And that's what the gospel offers. If you know the gospel, this sermon should give you a sense of warmth in your stomach, not a burning in the bosom, a warmth in your stomach that helps you to really appreciate what God has done. If you don't know the gospel, if you're not a Christian, I really do hope that you'll listen to this with fresh ears and fresh eyes and see for the very first time why the gospel drives Christians crazy. It's because it's amazing and it's still amazing after 2000 years. All right, we're looking at Colossians chapter one, verses 22 through 23. I am also looking for a clock, which I cannot see. Boom, I can use my phone right here. Okay, jumping into Colossians chapter 1, 22, 21 through 23. We're going to take one verse at a time. So let's just start off. Let me give you the sense of what's happening here. Paul writes to them, and we're picking up from where we left off last week. This is the, the next verse. And you, who were once, uh, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body uh, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This section begins with Paul. Uh, he, he, he's rejoicing in the fact that Christ is the one who came. He lived. He died in our place. He's preeminence. He's supreme in all things. And then he turns the corner and says, and I want you guys to remember why this is so amazing, because you guys used to be enemies of Christ. You used to be apart from Christ. The first point I want to focus in on with you is the, is the point of the fact that if you're not a Christian, you used to have a life without Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, you used to have a life without Christ. If you're not a Christian right now, your life is without Christ. And I want to help you really feel the sense of what scripture points to as what life without Christ is like. Paul is taking a progression in this text. He's going from past to present to future. And for Christians, we're looking in the past. For non-Christians, we're looking at your present. And I want to show you what this looks like. I went to Big Bear not too long ago with the family. We took a family vacation. And one of the things that we visited, because we're a family, is we visited the Big Bear Museum. The Big Bear Valley Historical Museum. The place goes back a long ways. And it's really cool because one of the things they have there is a, is a, a cabin that's kind of been preserved from whenever they first established in the 1800s, give or, give or take. And so that cabin, if you, if you go inside the cabin, it's really cool. They have old beds and quilts and they had, you know, it's one big room where an entire family would live and they had things made out of wood and they had a wash bowl and they had all sorts of things that really help you appreciate what, what life is like today. We even went to the school, which is really right next door. And in the school, you could tell kids are really happy to be there. This one of them was. Um, the desks were small and, and you see all the artifacts that are related to how life used to be. And there grew a sense of appreciation within me about why I, I really do appreciate the modern luxuries we have. I mean, we have electricity, we have warmth, we have, uh, we have air conditioning, we have warm blankets and pillows, and we have so many good things. We have the internet. I'm talking to you from Aliso Viejo and all of you guys are spread all over Orange County and I'm talking to you in real time. Couldn't do that back in those days. 
Sometimes we have to see life as it was in order to appreciate what it currently is. And that's, again, what I want to draw your attention to as we ponder the realities of life without Christ. The Bible, first, first and foremost, says that uh, you were alienated from God. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated, alienated. What does that term conjure up? That term means that you were estranged from God. In fact, the very term itself means uh, that you're not by nature a friend of God. A lot of people think about God being this uh, big grandpa figure, a little maybe absent-minded, but he's nice, he's warm, he's, he's, I mean, everyone hears the term. If anyone knows anything about God, it's that God is love, right? Everyone knows that. And yet the kind of love that most people often think about in their minds is not the kind of love that the Bible defines, but a kind of love that is sentimental, kind of love that is defined by our current culture and society and not by the love that the, the Bible describes. God tells us that we are estranged from him. In fact, here's how, here's how Ecclesiastes 7.20 puts it. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. That means for all of us, you and for me, all of us are born in the state of being estranged from God. We are uh, separated from him because we are sinners, every single one of us. And as I'm talking to you on this, uh, on this uh, on the Zoom service, I want you to know that before God, you are full of sin. You're full of vileness and wickedness before him. His standard is perfection. And you and I have fallen woefully short. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, the kind of life that you uh, live presently as an unbeliever or used to live as, a, as an unbeliever is one where um, before God, it's not like you have a whole lot of good and some bad. It's all bad. Even the good that you do is bad good because it's not done for his honor and glory. Consequently, that means that you're not a child of his favor. You're not the, you know, you're not the one that he loves looking at and looking to because you are by nature a child of wrath, the Bible says, like the rest of mankind. In other words, there's no one who's accepted in this. Every single person in the world right now who is not a believer is alienated from God and thus separated from him. Isaiah 59.2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. In other words, you call out to God, he's not listening. Unless that prayer is a prayer of faith, God is separated from you because of your sin. That's what it means to be alienated from God. That next part of verse 21 says, not only are you alienated, but you're also hostile in mind. That idea of hostility carries the term and the, the connotation of being not apathetic toward God, but antagonistic. Um, the Greek word behind this word hostile is most often translated enemy. You've heard this before. If you've been around in any church at all, the Bible says that you are an enemy of God. You're by nature against him. A lot of people think, well, I, you know, I can, I can take religion. I, I don't want to take religion. It's kind of, doesn't matter much to me. I, I don't really consider religion all that important. But the idea that the scripture says is that if you're not submitted to God, if you're not living for his glory and honor, you are in fact an enemy of God because God demands that all of his creation submit to him and submit to his Christ. That's why we're talking about Christ being supreme. Everything is meant to coalesce around who Christ is and what he came to do. And when you don't do that, the Bible says that you are, uh, by very nature, an enemy of God. You're not only estranged from him, like he's some kind of distant uncle that you never see, you're also an enemy. 
And it says you're an enemy in a very specific sense that the way that you think conveys your enemy status with God. Romans chapter one really does help us understand this a little better. In fact, it says it like this. For although they knew God, that is everybody has a sense of God being uh, real and alive and, and in some way governing. He says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Think about that for a second. You fail to think rightly about God. You fail to honor him in your thoughts or give thanks to him. I want you to pause for a second. Even if you're a Christian, I want you to think about this. When's the last time I thanked God? Hopefully, it was as soon as today, this morning, when I remembered today was Easter, I thanked God that Jesus rose from the dead and saved me. But even as Christians, we don't thank God nearly as much as we should. For the young believer, there rarely is a time when God is thanked. Even now, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, you'll notice that Thanksgiving is no longer directed toward, hey, give your thanks to God. It's, hey, let's be thankful. Let's just be thankful. <laughs> okay, thankful to what? Thankful to who? Uh, secular society has determined that thankfulness to God is outdated and outmoded. And now let's just be thankful, period. Let's just all be happy, slappy people, being thankful to no one in particular for the, all the good things that we have. Forgetting the fact that Thanksgiving was meant to be directed toward God altogether. This is one of the ways that we're hostile to God in their thinking. And it says in verse 21, their foolish hearts were darkened because we don't honor him, because we don't thank him, because we, we reject him. That, that means that God allows our hearts to be darkened in ways that uh, that show his judgment upon us, claiming to be wise, verse 22. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Whenever we reject God, we replace him with other things, whether it's pleasure, power, people, or something else in between. Everything that we're meant to do for God, whenever we don't do that, shows that we are enemies of God. God demands our allegiance. He deserves it. And yet when we don't do that, it shows that we are enemies of God, which uh, highlights the fact that we are separated, but also hostile enemies of God in our minds. It starts in our minds, but then it goes further. Of course, it says in this, the last part of verse 21, we are also uh, doing evil deeds. And that would include the kind of evil deeds that you speak, the kind of evil deeds that you do when you're mean to your siblings, when you're disobedient to parents or authorities, when you're sexually immoral in all of its various forms, when you gossip, when you slander, when you uh, yell at your parents or yell at your teachers, or when you uh, blow up in anger at somebody, all of those things stem from the fact that you're alienated from God, you're hostile in mind, and you continue to do evil. None of us is exempt from this. And one of the things I want you to do right now, hopefully you have something to write with or write on. Here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christian, I want you to ask yourself, what are you most thankful for when, it, when you think about your life before Christ? If everything uh, that I just read to you, uh, I just exp explained to you, is true for you, it was true in the past, that should be super thank thankfulness creating in you. It should generate a lot of gratitude. If you're not a Christian, what are, the thoughts about, what are your thoughts about how the Bible describes someone who isn't a Christ follower? All right, I'm giving you one minute to do that. Ready, set, go.
All right, and that's time. One of the things that can happen as you do this is you can easily turn to despair. If you're not a Christian, you could easily say, man, if God feels this way about me, then surely there's no hope for me. As a Christian, this should inspire such awe and joy in what God has done on your behalf. In fact, that's what Colossians 1.22 helps us do. Look at this. In verse 1, you see the past. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Look at verse 2. Uh, Verse 22, this is now the present. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the turning point. And this is what's amazing about the gospel, even now, 2000 years later. One of the things that you should draw from verse 22 is that God's love is amazingly redemptive. It's not static. It's, it's doing something with us. It's, it's having an effect on us that takes us to an end point. You got to marvel at that. Point two, you got to revel in God's redemptive love. Revel in this, to see it as something that is uh, not just uh, saving us and leaving us there, but Jesus loves sinners by saving us from something and to something. That's what I mean by redemptive. Uh, and, and let me explain it by, by, by way of an illustration. Um, one of the things I remember going into Guatemala is that there were stray dogs everywhere strays everywhere. And they came up to you and they seemed friendly. And I was tempted to pet one, but I was told not to, otherwise I'd get rabies and die. So I refrained uh, that time. But then when no one was looking, I did it. No one saw me though. Uh, (laughs) I think I'm okay. Uh, One of the things that I thought about was, man, I I wonder how many of these dogs get injured and sick and just die without anyone caring about that. So let me use this as an illustration here. Let's pretend for a moment that you see a stray dog you're, you're walking down the block and you're social distancing and you see this cute stray dog. He's, he's, he's sickly looking though. You know, he's sickly. He looks like a stray dog. And then you see the stray dog go into the street. And in the street, you see Evan Jacobson driving a semi at 90 miles an hour down to 25. And he's going right for this dog. And you feeling a wealth of compassion and warmth in your bosom you see that dog and you decide I am going to save that dog from the clutches of Evan's evil hands. And so as Evan is turning the corner, heading straight for your stray dog, you jump in front of that dog and you push the dog out of the way. And you also barely get, barely skip and miss Evan almost running you over. Okay. Now Evan is long gone. You see this dog here. And you know, you, th- you thought, you know, my good day for the deed, my good deed for the day has been done. I'm excited about what I've done. And now I'm just going to walk away and hopefully this dog gets along pretty well. But really, when you look at the dog, you, you see that he's flea bitten, he's sickly, he's skinny. He, he doesn't just need to be saved from this oncoming semi that I've been driving. He also needs health. He needs support. He needs food. He needs water. He needs medical attention. He needs so much more than just being saved from the oncoming truck that Evan was driving. He needs a benevolent master. He needs someone to care for him and show him attention. And in a very similar way, uh, when when we come to Christ, it's not just Christ uh, taking us uh, out of the, the clutches of sin and death. He does something for us. He saves us from that, but he also saves us to something. This is what's often called the great exchange. See, we don't just need forgiveness for our sin. That's a big part. We we don't need forgiveness just for our sin. We also need restoration. We need health. We need to be restored to the way that God has designed us to be. 
Again, this is called the great exchange. Jesus gets our unrighteousness. We get his righteousness. It's not just one thing. We get the whole thing. It's like having a salsa without tomatoes. That'd be a terrible salsa. But the salsa with tomatoes, though, becomes a lot more tasty because you're getting the whole enchilada. I'm mixing my metaphors now, but you get what I'm saying. Here's the idea. This story, even though it's a gospel story, is a story that continues to be told time after time again because it's there's no greater story than this. In fact, let me go back to the Easter classic Frozen 2. Elsa, no, who is this? Yeah, this is Elsa. Elsa dies in order to discover the truth, right? Have you seen the movie? Elsa descends to the depths of, let's just call it, you know, the depths of hell. She descends the depths of hell to discover the truth in order to save her people. She dies. Hero dies. Only to be resurrected. Oh, resurrected and given immortality. She now can protect her people permanently because she has died and has risen again. Disney has stolen from the gospel. That's all I'm going to say about that. But there's no better story. The uniqueness of God's love is that it's redemptive. It's, it's salvific in the, in the fullest sense possible. So let me just put it really simply here. Jesus dies to save humanity from things. First of all, from sin. When Jesus saves us from our sin, we have to remember that sin was our slave master. We followed our sinful inclinations. I'm sorry, Ryan Smith, we're the spoilers. We we were saved from our sinful inclinations that drove us and made us uh, follow our own flesh. The Bible says that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It was our sinfulness that drove that. And of course, the consequence for that was was death. Jesus, when he dies, he releases us from the clutches of our own sin. He releases us from the, from the consequence of our sin, which is death. And then he ultimately frees us from God's wrath, the thing that we all justly deserve. So that's where he saves us from, but there's also a saving to. Jesus saves us to righteousness. We now can live in positional perfection before God, where we are now slaves to Christ. And we continue to get more and more godly as he designed us. Not only that, we go from death to abundant life. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. The idea behind that is that Jesus isn't just throwing us out of the way from the semi-truck of death. He's also taking us, uh, taking us into his family, adopting us, and giving us life as it was meant to be in this life and the life to come, not in his fullness, but also uh, but in its quality. And of course, all of this points to the fact that we are now favored of God. We become his children. We become the people that we were meant to be, having fellowship with one another, having fellowship with God, and enjoying his divine favor toward us. What an amazing story. Jesus saves us from sin and death and God's judgment, and he saves us to righteousness, abundant life, and God's favor. Amazing. Take 30 seconds. What makes God's redemptive love qualitatively better than most other depictions of love? Think about movies. Think about music. Think about television. Think about whatever you're streaming right now and think what makes God's love qualitatively better of a different quality and kind. 30 seconds starting now.
All right. God's redemptive love, amazing of a quality different than all others, saving us from and to. Amazing. But look at this last verse here. There is a contingency. Colossians 1.23, this is how you get into this. Take a look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, there's the qualifier. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says that the way that we get into our relationship with God is by faith, but we must stay in that faith. It's the idea that once you begin the race, you have to finish it. And you have to realize that getting in the race isn't going to be easy. Your faith has to be active. It has to be growing. It has to be increasing and not stagnant like a pool of water. It has to be flowing like a river, alive, moving. Point number three, you need to see the necessity of active faith. Active as opposed to passive. Active as opposed to something that's just sitting there and hoping that you'll, it, it grows, like a plant. You can't look at a plant and just hope that it grows by itself. You got to water it. You got to give it attention. You got to give it sunlight. Um, it's kind of like driving. It's, it's, like a, it's the idea of when you're driving, you have to be actively aware of your surroundings. Um, you have to be thinking about the traffic lights and the, sound, the surrounding cars and the road conditions and the lines on the road and the, your speed and, and whether or not you're going the right direction. You know, all of these things have to be included when you're thinking about your, your driving. And the same thing is true with our faith. We have to be aware that when we get in the Christian car, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, we have a destination in mind and God is going to get us there if we, if we follow his instructions, but we have to be ever present and ever aware that it requires work on our part. And the work is trusting in Christ. The work is following him. The work is, tr- is, uh, is loving him. It's not the work of like, hey, work hard to get to heaven. It's the work of faith. Faith, by its very definition, must have actions. Think about this. If you trust something to be true, you're going to act upon it. If you trust that Evan is a wealthy trillionaire and he'll give you a billion dollars, if you just ask, you're going to ask him over and over again. If you trust that your parents have your best interest at heart, you're going to trust them when they say, I don't want you to do this, I want you to do that. Trust, faith. As we look at this verse, you'll notice there's several elements of what active faith looks like. Really quickly, let's go through some of those. Active faith is first and foremost stubborn. It is stubborn. If indeed you continue in the faith, it is a faith that isn't quickly or easily deterred. It is stubbornly committed to Christ and his honor and his glory. It is a stubborn kind of faith. It's also grounded. Paul says that if you continue in your faith, stable stable and steadfast it refers to the kind of faith that is, is not uh, shifting because it's grounded in God's word. It's trusting his leadership. It's trusting what he's doing in your life and knowing that when you stay uh, closely tethered to him, there's nothing to fear. I can follow him without any fear that he's going to mislead me. It's grounded in him. It's also unmoving. Think about a building now. A building has a firm foundation and that's kind of what's happening there under the grounded part. Unmoving is a stable edifice that grows into the air and isn't easily moved. It's stable. It's unmoving. It's grounded. Structure that is, uh, that is unshifting, strong. Active faith is also biblical. One of the things that Paul's concerned about is that they will leave the gospel and find something else to fill their, to fill their, their hearts with. And he's saying, uh, Colossians, don't do this. Be rooted and grounded in Christ. Firm in him. Don't leave it. 
In other words, how do you do that? You have to know what the Bible teaches about him, guys. You have to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. To call yourself a Christian, what a great time for you to get deep in God's word, to learn it and to grow in it. Lastly, Paul says, this is the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That word minister is a diakonos. Paul says, when, when the gospel came into my life, I became a servant of the gospel, no longer living for myself, but now living for the glory of the gospel. The gospel has effects on us. Faith that is active, that trusts the gospel is going to be life-changing. The gospel is life-changing, life-altering, can't leave you the same. That's what real faith looks like. Easter is amazing, guys, for so many reasons that we haven't even touched on, but at the very least know that Easter is amazing because Jesus lived and died in our place, and he still sets sinners free, and Christians who have been saved now can look back at the gospel and realize what God has done through us and for us in order that he might receive more glory, honor, and praise. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. There's so much more to say about this, but I do recognize that I have just elapsed on the time commitment that I've given you. So here's what's next. In the next couple of days, you're going to have small groups and I'm going to have some small group questions out for you to think through. But as a Christian, if this is, if this is true for you, I want you to revel in the gospel, to enjoy it today with your family. As you think about what Jesus has done, enjoy the fact that we have a firm foundation that doesn't change even if the world around us does. We have permanence in the gospel. We have a secure relationship with him. If you're not a Christian, I would love for you to think more about this and realize what God has done on your behalf. I also would encourage you, one of the ways that your faith can grow and be active is by being part of a group that loves the word of God. You can meet me here on this Zoom every day at 11 a.m. and let's talk about God's word together and grow in it and, and serve the Lord through that. Thank you guys again for joining me. Let me pray for you and you will be free to go. God, we're so thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for Easter. We're thankful that Jesus crushed sin and death. He died on Friday, but on Sunday he rose just as he promised he would. And now he has ascended to your right hand, ruling and reigning. And someday we'll come back. Someday we'll come back for us. We look forward to that, God. We long for that. And we are incredibly thankful for the truth that Jesus rules and reigns and nothing can ever change that. Make us bold evangelists, God. If, if we know the gospel, help us to share it. We are privileged to share it. And how dare we do anything less than that? We know that the gospel has changed our life, our lives, and, and we want it to change the lives of others. So please make us obedient servants who are willing to share it with others, whether it's sharing the video or, or, or sharing Pastor Mike's uh, Easter message or whatever method, God, help us just to be obedient in whatever ways we can. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the resurrection. We're thankful for Easter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great Easter Sunday. See you guys soon.